So uh, <clears throat> a long, 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 long time before Jesus and John the, well, baptizer, as we keep saying, he's not a Baptist, um, long before that, there was Abram, who later became Abraham, and God had called him out of um, some city in ancient Babylonia. We don't know exactly which one. The, uh, it's Ur of the Chaldees, but the word Ur just means city. So, I don't know, take your pick. And he says, go to the place that I'm going to show you. And even though you're childless, I'm going to make a promise to you. I will be your God. You and your descendants will be my people. And that's a bit of a problem because he, he, he doesn't have any kids, so you don't have descendants if you have no kids. And eventually, of course, Abraham <clears throat> does have a, a son who's a bit of a shady character. Abra, Abraham himself is kind of a shady guy to begin with. Um, and then his son has a son, and he has a whole bunch of kids. And then over time... They, the sons of Abraham's grandson, who becomes named Israel, find themselves in Egypt because of famine and all of that good stuff. And so they spend many generations in Egypt. And that, that whole time, there's this lingering question of, okay, yeah, but what about the thing with Abraham? Like, you, this creator God promised that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and he's got, like, land for them. And in the ancient world, land was everything. And yet, they're in Egypt. And so, they spend some time in Egypt, and then a little more time in Egypt, and then a little more time in Egypt. And then eventually, there's some kind of political upheaval, like maybe a new pharaoh dynasty or something like that. Um, theories abound. But they enslaved these Hebrew people, the Hebrews being the descendants of Abraham. And they lived as slaves for a while. And again, there's this lingering question of, yeah, what about that whole Abraham thing? I think if you're like specifically named as the people of the Creator God, you probably shouldn't be slaves. And so eventually... And why God waits for these kinds of things will continue to remain a mystery to all of us. He sends a guy named Moses. And God's plan is that through this first of the great Hebrew prophets, Moses, he will lead these people out of slavery in Egypt. So he gives this Moses a special charge, and Moses finds himself in the court of Yul Brynner, I mean Pharaoh, and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. But he says, no. <laughs> These slaves are useful and valuable. Um, now, they get into basically what amounts to a big fight between this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the gods and other like deity-type elements of Egypt and this becomes known as the Ten Demonstrations or the Ten Plagues of Egypt. You know, the darkness and the frogs and the Nile turning into blood and the boils and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> none of that really works. 
Some of it works briefly, but Pharaoh is obstinate. Until the final demonstration of power when God decides to basically hit right, he, he finds that pain point. That single point that you just have to hit there, and he knows that Egypt will budge. In this case, it's the firstborn son. And that's a big deal if you're Pharaoh because you're supposed to be God on earth, which means he's going after the son of a God. And God gives a special charge to Moses and then the rest of the Hebrews. Okay, this night is different from all other nights. And he gives them a bunch of kind of like uh, ways to prepare themselves. Like, uh, you're, you're going to prepare bread for the, the journey. Don't even bother with the yeast. Don't take the time to let it rise. And in fact, get all the yeast out of your house. And at some point, we start asking, Wait, are, we, are we still talking about yeast? Or is this like a metaphor for sin in our lives? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Um, anyway. And, and take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb. You're going to raise it yourself, and eventually you will slaughter it in a certain way. You will cook it in a certain way, and you will take the blood, and you will mark it on the doorposts in your house, and that blood will mark you as God's own. And when this final plague comes through, your house will not be touched. And it works. And Pharaoh finally says, I give up, get out of here. And so they scram. And, you know, they, they make it to, like, the big, it, it's actually not the Red Sea, it's just, in Hebrew, the Sea of Reeds. Um, and they think they're going to die because Pharaoh is like, wait, th- those are slaves, they're valuable. And he goes after them and blah, 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 they make it. And they spend a little time at Mount Sinai. And God gives them Torah, this law. And and he says, at this point, you are now my people. This is how they will know. This is how you mark yourselves as separate, by following these laws. And he essentially founds Israel. They make it to the promised land. And, And their history from then on is really complicated. Because sometimes they follow God's law, plenty of other times they go off and get all mixed up in the Gentile tribes that live around them. And and when I say that, I don't mean they come to the realization that pork is amazing and they decide to eat that. That's not what I mean. I mean, they get into worshiping the Canaanite gods which include things like ritual child sacrifice, forced temple prostitution. Like one of the reasons why God says don't go worshiping any of these other gods is that by definition, worshiping them violates what it means to be human. Don't do that. <laughs> and so they're, they're, the rest of their history, you can read about it in like, First and Second Kings and, and all of that, um, and First and Second Chronicles, it's complicated. And eventually, they go so far south, metaphorically, 
that God sends them into exile. They lose the land that they were promised. And in the year 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians come in and, and wipe them out. Now, interestingly enough, their, we'll say culture, but it's more than that, endures. And there's, that's kind of remarkable from like a historical social perspective because they're the only ones. You can walk down the street and encounter somebody who is connected to these people historically, genealogically, and spiritually. The Jewish people. Some in Albuquerque, if you go to New York, lots. It just kind of depends. You don't encounter people who have that connection to the ancient Egyptians. I've never met a Moabite or a Sumerian or a Babylonian or anything like that. Outside of like San Francisco, but that's totally different. Um, it, that's its own thing. Um, so that raises a question. Why? Why would their people still exist? Because Israel, really Israel and Judah, like that whole area, was never that big of a deal. And the times when they prospered as a nation, so like the days of the great King David and King Solomon, occurred when the great empires to the south, which would be Egypt, and to like the north and northeast, which would be like Babylonia, Syria, Sumeria, whatever. Like, they, Israel thrived when those great empire areas were just in shambles. So why would... This, relatively speaking, small, unimportant, relatively speaking, group of people endure. Um, first off, like the obvious answer is people of faith. We would say, God, duh. Uh, but say you are answering this question in like a, I don't know, a, a, a totally secular environment. And so that kind of argument wouldn't work. Well, you would point to the fact that they, better than like everybody, harness the power of story and history. They endured because they maintained the stories of their people, the histories of what it meant to be them. They preserve the stories of Father Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. They preserve the writings of their great prophets. And those writings that they sought to live by maintain their identity. And not just like that because they could just be really good archivists or librarians or something like that, but they lived by them. They had Torah, this gift of, of how you live and interact with others around you, and they organized their year around these stories. So as you got into what we would eventually call like fall, you'll be looking at a Sukkot, 
the, uh, the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, when, the, when everybody gets outside and they construct these three-sided dwelling things and you live in them for a week. You're like camping and you celebrate and you barbecue and, and you drink good wine and you have fun because you're remembering that your ancestors wandered the wilderness and lived outside. Around this time, also Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would take uh, the unblemished animal and he'd be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. And you would confess your sins and you would fast. Toward, um, as it got cold, you would remember Hanukkah, when, when God led the people to revolt against the Greeks and you maintained you actually gain some sense of autonomy and self-rule for a little while. You organized, like, your existence, your life throughout the year was a constant reenactment so that you would never forget who you are. There's tremendous power and wisdom in that. It's kind of like, you know, for us, like, the weather starts getting cold, Weird music starts playing on the radio and in stores. We take a tree, chop it down, and bring it inside for some reason. We start setting out little figures with these weird people, and then there's like this little manger thing. And then we celebrate the bir- somebody's birthday. And then, again, as it gets a little towards spring, things get a little somber. We start to talk about the heavier things, things like repentance. We start calling it Lent, and then it leads to this big moment where everything goes white, and we celebrate resurrection. Like, we do the same thing, because our practice evolved from theirs. One of these practices, in fact, one of the most important, if not the most important, was designed around reminding the people what God did for them. They were slaves in Egypt, and God set them free. This night is different from all other nights. When a lamb is killed, and the people feast on this lamb, because its blood marks them as belonging to God and sets them free. Now, 15 minutes later, remember Jesus. He's going by, and this wild, kind of crazy, impossible-to-control prophet named John says, the Lamb of God. Wait, the Lamb of God? The lamb of God, like, that takes, well, the lamb that we kill? Who is this guy? Like, Messiah? Messiah's not supposed to die. And then John says it again, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Wait, what's going on here? What does this mean? The Messiah's and Passover. Because the people at that time are still in exile. It's difficult to tell if they know it or not. We, apart from Jesus, are still in exile. 
the, the brokenness that is humanity and what we call human nature has created this or has been this wedge that has driven us between or, or been driven between who we are and who we were created to be. We have this separation between ourselves, between others, and ultimately between our Creator. We are slaves to ourselves. We don't live, essentially, in the land that God had promised us. I think we can all feel this in our bones. And when John sees this guy walking by, some relative of his, and suddenly goes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he means God is doing something deeply, deeply connected to the ancient stories. And also something that nobody saw coming. This also means that as this this guy, this guy from Nazareth is walking by while this crazy camel-hair-wearing camel preacher is dunking people in the water. He says, the Lamb of God, he's also saying, hey, this guy is going to die so that other people can live. That is, to me, that is the most uncomfortable part about all of this. If I were to walk around and shake your hand and say, remember, you are going to die, I would not be invited to parties. Nobody likes that guy. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And even more disturbing is that he will do so for the sake of those around him. There is something, at least to me, deeply uncomfortable about other people's willingness to suffer and struggle for my sake. Um, I know I kind of referenced this last week. This is not like a, a, um, a set of illustrations or whatever that I, that I like to bring up a lot, but... Um, when I got sick many years ago and I uh, had leukemia and we thought I was going to die and, and, and uh, there, there was a procedure, a, a stem cell transplant that we were looking at. It was looking like I, I might have to undergo that. The insurance I had was terrible. Insert very cynical comments about health insurance industry, blah, blah, blah. That is not a political statement. Um, and... And it, basically, we were going to be bankrupt, and there was no way we were going to pay for it. We were looking at minimum several hundred thousand dollars, minimum. And a couple years later, I learned, it's not like they told me so that I would feel guilty, but I learned that um, my parents and some other family had actually had some very serious discussion about selling their houses. Ooh. That's deeply uncomfortable. That is, I, I don't like that. But why? It's not like I was forcing them to. It was love. Driven by love. John the baptizer, 
as this man from Nazareth walks by, saying he's finally here, connected to the old stories. His blood put on your metaphorical doorposts will mark you as one belonging to God. The sin of your lives, the sin that drives you into exile from yourselves, from those around you, and ultimately from your creator, gone. Because this is now the Lamb of God. And why would he do that? It's because he loves you. Amen. I invite you to rise as you're able.